La 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 Johnson's world. La 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 Johnson's podcast sucks. La 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 Johnson's world. Recording now. Hey everyone, this is John Seth, and you're listening to John Seth's World. I'm actually I got a special episode today. Uh, it's just me. And a special guest, uh, I'm talking to Julian Wheatland, uh, who is, or was, I guess, CEO of Cambridge Analytica. Um, and we're just going to talk a little bit about what happened there and, uh, you know, explore explore that entire mess. Hey, Julian. Hey, John Seth. Nice to be here. Great. Uh, it's great to have you. I'm excited to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the Cambridge Analytica stuff, because I think in American in, in the American political sphere, uh, people view your company as uh, the one that maybe gave us Donald Trump. And I think that that's uh, – I don't know if that's entirely fair. Um, I'm not a big believer in the efficacy of marketing, and uh, and I think I, I'd like to explore a little bit of that with you and, and talk a little bit about how maybe uh, effective Cambridge Analytica actually was from someone who was, in fact, on the inside. So um, there's been – I think – I, what I want to really address is uh, the criticisms of someone like Brittany Kaiser. Brittany Kaiser is one of these people who worked at Cambridge Analytica. She's now known as a whistleblower um, and has talked a lot about what occurred inside Cambridge Analytica. And I thought it was something that you could address. I've kind of gone through. There's that movie, The Great Hack, that just came out on Netflix and is uh, has kind of taken the world by storm, has a lot of claims in it, and I've taken – as many of the claims as I can gone through them, and I, I was hoping that we could go over them here. Yeah, I would be delighted. Cool. So, Julian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, why? What? What's your position at Cambridge? What did you do there? How long did you work with, like, Alexander Nix, for example? Yeah, sure. So um, <laughs> the, the predecessor of Cambridge Analytica, or the parent company Cambridge Analytica, was uh, – a company called Strategic Communications Laboratories, or SCL. And I was managing an investment fund about 12 years ago, and uh, we invested some money into that company, and that was started by Alexander Nix and a couple of other people uh, with the aim of uh, doing providing strategic communications services, primarily to governments, primarily to the U.S. government and then the U.K. government, um, when they might want to project influence overseas to um, uh, foreign uh, foreign populations. So that company was uh, was very interesting, invested some money in it, and I joined the board as executive director and became chairman of that. And that's when I first came across Alexander. He, about five years later, maybe a bit more, maybe seven years later, he left the company and set up a new company called SCL Elections. Um, and uh, that was in 2012. Uh, and in about, uh, I joined him there to help him because he was growing very fast. He'd done this joint venture that was Cambridge Analytica in the States. It was growing fast. And he needed some help with the finance and operations. So I joined him at SCL Elections at the beginning of 2015. And I was the chief operating officer and chief finance officer of the company up until 
early in 2018 when we had to, I was on the parent board of the company and we, um, or the then parent board of the company, and we had to ask him to step down as chief executive and I took over um, in order to clean up the mess. And this is the the post uh, Donald Trump election mess after everything kind of exploded, it was, right? It was post everything mess. I mean, it was uh, uh, yes, it was a series of of um, uh, heavy bad PR, I would say, I mean, <laughs> a, a heavy media hits um, that involved you know, allegations of pretty much everything under the sun, but including. Uh, hacking Facebook data, uh, hacking people's minds, um, getting people to do what they uh, what they don't want to do, including vote for Brexit and vote for Donald Trump. Um, and um, there was the straw that broke the uh, broke the camel's back was an undercover video of Alexander, um, where he was offering services for an election in Sri Lanka, which were unethical and immoral at best and probably illegal. Essentially, and, he was, that, he, that, that was the video where he claimed that you guys had spies that they could send off and, you know, sleep with people and whatnot, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. The Channel I mean, 4. Fantasy, I, I, for, for, for the record, I'm going to tell you that was fantasy, but um, nevertheless, it did enough damage to the company such that he had to step down. So um, yeah, Channel Four. So real quick, Julian. I mean, what? How did you get there? Like, what were your qualifications? What did you do before Cambridge Analytica? How did you come to uh, come into enough money that you were able to invest in Cambridge Analytica in those early days? Like, what? What are? What is your history? Sure. Okay. Well, to be clear, I was managing an investment fund, so it wasn't my money I was investing. Um, it was uh, it was the investment fund. And that had a focus of investing in uh, security technologies, and SCL at that time was 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 viewed in that way. Um, so that's how we invested. My background was that uh, I'm an engineer, and then I studied business, and I've been running businesses, uh, particularly technology businesses, for the last 25 years, um, and I've done that uh, all over the world. I've, managed an investment fund that invested globally. Uh, I had my own company that was helping um, technology companies grow and reach international markets um, uh, as, a, as a service to the um, uh, defense industry. So, so I, I've, been, I've been managing fast-growing companies for um, most of my career. And so when Cambridge Analytica was taking off, I think that's why Alexander asked me if I could come and Lend a hand. So the did the the investment fund didn't install you on this board. Alexander actually asked you. Yeah, that's correct. The investment fund had installed me on the board of the original company, but uh, at the time that Alexander was uh, running SCL elections and asked me to come and help him, the two companies were entirely separate. So they just happened to have a common name. And, and why um, for marketing purposes? Why was Alexander able to do that? Did the company give him permission then to go off and start that company with a similar name? Is that because in in this mess it seems yes. like there's like twelve that's different right. SCLs, <laughs> SCL Canada, yes, SCL right. elections. Okay, um, I'm sorry. It, it, it's a complicated structure, and, and not Machiavellian really complicated structure, but not for the Machiavellian reasons that. Uh, uh, We've been accused of in the press. It's just because that's the way the company grew up. And so Alexander had the permission to leave and go and set up another company. Um, 
And uh, Alexander seems like a very clever guy. The fact that he's able to continually go drum up business. I mean, he's, he, uh, he's sort of a salesman. I mean, is, he, is his background marketing, was he just a, a, a biz dev type sales guy? Yeah, I think if you were to ask Alexander, he'd describe himself as being a, um, a, an investment banker at heart. But, uh, but actually, he's a biz dev sales guy. Uh, he's got natural skills in that area and, um, uh, and an unrestrained ability to um, um, spin the most positive story, I would say. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems very much like he's willing to kind of say anything to get business. <laughs> I don't think that is uh, is an incorrect interpretation of what I've seen from him. No, I think that's I think I, I think that's fair. Actually, he's um, he's determined, and he'll promise whatever he thinks the client wants, and then work out how he's going to deliver it. And, and let's face it, a lot of businesses are great way. Well, it's it, you guys are a marketing company. I mean, I, I've been I've worked in marketing companies, so. I mean, marketing companies uh, are notorious, I think, for putting little uh, one-sheeters together that give uh, KPIs that are oblique. Uh, you can't really look into them. They're obtuse, and they're, uh, they're very, very exaggerated. Would, is that the same? Would, do you think that would be a good description of what happened to Cambridge Analytica as well? Was that the same as your material? Yeah, and I'm not even sure it was just one pages, but it was across the piece from the way that we talked to the press about what we were doing to Alexander standing up in stage on stage and talking about what we were doing. Um, it, it, we, we oversold pretty much everything we did from the power of the technology um, to our impact on the Trump election to, um, to not denying that uh, we... Uh, we had worked on the Brexit, on the Brexit election. To not deny, so, that's, know, that's, that's a clever way to put it, it isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's what you see Alexander doing on the film. When yeah, he's, he's saying, we don't talk about it, he's, he's saying it because I don't want to deny it. He wanted the credit. Right, but without getting the credit. It's, it's, a very, it's very interesting. I, mean, that was, I saw that entire interaction, and I was kind of like, well, what the hell happened there? So what was... Mm -hmm. What was the work that you guys did for the Donald Trump campaign? And, and, and actually, I think that that extends to Cruz. Let's start there, actually. What did you guys do for, uh, for Ted Cruz? Uh, so we did, um, we did a lot of data analytics for Ted, for Ted Cruz. So that meant that we, um, uh, we were collecting uh, large quantities of commercially available data from various agencies, such as Axiom and the, uh, and the like. We were collecting that data and we were building up a profile of or attempting to build up a profile of individual voters so that we could then know who we wanted to communicate with and what sort of things we wanted to talk about. And so that knowledge and that insight wasn't just to the digital marketing effort, i.e. directing ads towards people when they're online, but it also went to inform um, all the way down to you know snail mail marketing and um, uh, and doorstep campaigns, knocking on people's doors and talking to them, and yeah. having uh, a, 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 having a script as to what you want to say before they open the door. And and what what were Cambridge Analytica's responsibilities? Did you guys just design the creative? Did you design the whole campaign? Uh, what did you guys do from beginning to end? So on the cruise campaign, we did the data analytics. Um, and then there was another agency. This was a Canadian company uh, called um, AIQ. 
and they did the digital marketing. And uh, from my memory, I don't think we provided creative services, so creative must have been inside the cruise campaign, I would guess, uh, but I, I might not have that right. Um, so the, but the digital marketing was done by um, uh, AIQ. Data analytics was done by us. And is that pretty typical in a campaign that there's multiple agencies of record? It's, it's, it's fairly typical, but also it was a question at that time, the company was still growing and it didn't have a digital marketing. We didn't have a digital marketing capability. Uh, and um, at least when we started with the cruise campaign. So that's why that happened. And we knew AIQ from before. They'd done, some, they'd done other work with us and they'd also done some um, software development for us. So uh, there was a relationship there. In fact, what happened is during the cruise campaign, we acquired our own uh, digital marketing capabilities. So when we started with Trump campaign, we did digital marketing as well as the data analytics. Well, what, is that because of the cruise campaign? Did you realize that there was a deficiency in your offering at that point? Yes. And so oh, you... Uh, uh, yes, and but then we also were able to find a really good person to... Uh, um, come in as head of digital. And how did you guys convince the cruise campaign to, to bring you on? What was your previous experience? How many campaigns had you worked on and where? And uh, what had you done for them? What did you say you did for them and what did you actually do for them? Uh, so uh, there's a few questions there. So our experience was, so I, I joined Alexander at the beginning of 2015, but he had, or SEL Elections had been working on the midterms in 2014. Um, and that's where they'd started to develop this data analytics capability. And during the period 2014 to, I guess, um, 15, when the, crump, when the cruise campaign, we started working with the cruise campaign, um, uh, we had further developed the data analytics capability. And we'd undertaken a lot of surveys. So um, the aim of the surveys was to understand what, what were the drivers of people's behavior. So it was to get a better insight into their personality, not just to understand that they might like a fast car, but to understand what they like about it and why they like it. Uh, and that, that was really a way of you know, refining marketing communications and being able to talk more directly to them. So we'd undertaken a lot of surveys and we'd built up, uh, and just to give you an idea, I think there was about 50,000 a month were, were done. So we built up a large database of this uh, these personality profiles and the data analytics um, objective was to be able to look at those personality profiles and match them against people's offline data footprint and then look for the signal somewhere in that data footprint look for the signal that indicated whether someone might be an open extrovert or an anxious neurotic and, and, and that's based on the big five, right? The, the big five personality. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And how did you administer those surveys? Was that on Facebook or was that in like physical space? Yeah, it was, it was, we used organizations like SurveyMonkey, um, et cetera. So it wasn't on Facebook at all. Um, and, and that was the interesting thing because, um, you know, you mentioned Facebook there, yeah. and, and as is pretty uh, well known now, the company did license some Facebook data um, from a third party at, at Cambridge University. And 
the aim of licensing that data was to see if it could be used to predict people's personality types, to do the same sort of thing that I was just describing. And in actual fact, it wasn't successful. Um, and uh, it wasn't useful in that regard. So although the company had licensed this data, and, and, and honestly, when we were first approached by Facebook to delete it, we, we still held the data, um, it was never useful. And so uh, was never used on the uh, Trump campaign. The, the, the data from the surveys is what was used to inform the data analytics um, on, the, uh, on the Trump campaign. The, these surveys, Julian, are, were, were they individualizable? Could you, did you know who took them, or were they more uh, sort of random and, and anonymous on the whole? Uh, uh, I believe we, know, we, we, no, we knew who took them. We were able to match them to, um, to uh, uh, offline data footprint. Okay, so was that, was that permission given to you by the people who took them, or was that somewhat of a violation of sort of norms of, of survey giving? No, no, no. These people were paid, and they knew um, they, they knew what they were uh, that they were being identified. Okay, so that's very interesting. You guys didn't actually use the Facebook data in the Trump campaign. That's correct. That's astounding. In fact, well, I'm going to take more than that. We didn't use the survey data either. We only worked for the Trump campaign from the convention through to the election for it's about three, three and a half months, and it wasn't time. There wasn't enough time for us to um, uh, to utilize the personality stuff. Um, that, that sort of flies in the face of absolutely everything that's been claimed. Don't you think? So, <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't planning on pursuing this route, but that's, that's super interesting. So you guys didn't use either the survey data, use neither the survey data nor, uh, Facebook data, which is the crux of the claims against you. That's, that's what you're stating here. For the Trump campaign. That's correct. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think. I think we have said many, many times that we didn't use any of the personality stuff on the Trump campaign, but people only hear it if they want to. What did you do for the Trump campaign? So we did data analytics, which was um, uh, which was predictive. So it was state by state. We were analyzing. We were doing an awful lot of polling. Um, and so uh, we would collect polling data. We'd build it up and we'd build that up against people's um, uh, people's uh, data footprint to try and understand what were the trends in voting intention. Um, and, you know, our polling was, the thing about polling is that the trick to it is is, po is polling people who are going to vote. Yeah. And that's subtly different from polling people who say they're going to vote. And so the, the strength of the polling activity that we did for the Trump campaign combined with the data analytics is that we were able to predict very accurately what the um, what the, which way each individual state was um, um, was positioned because we knew much better than anybody else who was going to vote. So, for example, in some states in the early voting, we could see that uh, the black vote was decreasing and the older white vote was increasing, and you know in in that situation, we could see the direction of travel. Um, and so that's where we were able to say to the campaign, you know, you should really go and visit Pennsylvania, for example. Um, is, is that so essentially we what doing... you did, though, is, is you gave them indications of where they ought to go? Or did you do more, more than yeah. that? I mean, like, I imagine you guys bought Facebook ads 
the the claim in the the Wait, video yeah. is that you guys did all of the creative for things like <coughs> sorry the crooked Hillary stuff. Yes. Yeah, so. Um... Uh, uh, yes, so we did much more. We did the data analytics, but we also did the digital marketing. Um, and so in the um, campaign headquarters in San Antonio, the data headquarters, our team was the data analytics team. And our digital marketing team was the one who was direct, uh, were the people who were directing the digital marketing ads and that they were directing the embedded teams from Google and Facebook that were also there. So we didn't place all the ads, but we placed a lot of them. Google placed a lot of them. Facebook placed a lot of them, but they all did it to our direction. And, and were you buying uh, like programmatic ads or were you buying or like what, what kind of ads are you purchasing? Just Facebook ads generally, or were you buying like uh, programmatic ads on sites, you know, like essentially bids, right? To show yeah, combination. combination. Yes, both. And how much were we you spending on this? Is that disclosable? Uh, I think it's probably in the campaign records, and the, uh, I'm not sure what it is. And the reason I'm not sure what it is is that actually um, the money went uh, straight from Brad Pascal's company to pay the ads. It didn't come through us. So it actually so, came uh, it like was, the campaign gave you their credit card, and I imagine they paid a percentage of whatever it is that their 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 spend was. Uh, I mean, I don't. I assume that I assume they paid what they what they were supposed to pay. I don't know about that, but um, yes, effectively, we we placed ads on their account, and and everything that they uh, had, everything that they received from the campaign is uh, disclosed in public records. So there, one of the things in the great hack that I thought was interesting was this discussion of psychographics. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like a very scary word. Can you describe what psychographics is? Psychographics is what I was describing um, with uh, uh, when we were undertaking the surveys. So it's really trying to understand what people's person, an individual's personality type is, on a using a Big Five um, Ocean Score, and then to try and look for indicators of that in their, uh, uh, in, their, in their offline data footprint, which would, if you could find that signal, then that would enable you to apply that signal to people you haven't surveyed to predict their personality type. So that's what psychographics is, and the purpose of it is to try and communicate to people uh, on issues and in ways that they can relate to, with a view to trying to increase the efficiency of advertising spend. And, and how, how much more effective does that make advertising spend when you know that information? Um, it, it, it could be, um, be single-digit percentage improvements. It could be 10 to 15%, something like that, if it was, if it was very successful. And, and that's 10 to 15% above what would normally happen, right? So let's say you're... Uh, running a campaign to get people to purchase some new product, you might be able to, I mean, would it, would it be reasonable to say that you could influence them, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% to uh, more purchases? Uh, I think, I think the, uh, probably the way to express it is to say that, um, yes, I mean, you could tip into it. You also, sorry, just to back up for a minute. We also need to recognize that, 
this is not an accurate way of predicting people's personality. Right. It is a way of getting statistically significant improvement in a certain advertising spend. Um, and so, you know, across across a hundred thousand people that you're targeting with ads, then you can improve the efficiency of that campaign. Um, and, and you're saying but, improve it ten percent more efficient, right? So, like, if if it would normally influence three yeah. percent of people, now you're talking three point three percent of people. Yes, that's right. Yes, exactly that. Okay, and and uh, in in the great hack, uh, Brittany alleges essentially that psychographics should be considered a munitions. Yeah. Can, can we talk a little I, bit about um, that? <laughs> yes, of course. Um, uh, I think that, I think it's absurd. Why do you I think, think it's, it's absurd? Well, it's just not that, it's just not that powerful. It's not that <laughs> effective. It, it, it's just a, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's the latest bit of tech being used by the advertising industry um, to, to, Suggest that it's a um, a weapon of war is insane. Who uses it? Every ad agency or just Cambridge Analytica? Oh no, um, I mean the. Uh, I think Cambridge Analytica was probably at the forefront of what's being done, but this is being done across the advertising industry. But you guys didn't the invent, invent the use of it, right? No, we didn't. We. Um, so the, the, the ocean scale, the, the, the big five ocean factors is very well established and has been around for nearly 100 years, I think. Uh, what we did was we attempted to try and build a way of analyzing data to predict it in people. Um, and, you know, there's a, I suppose the simplest way of saying it is we were trying to do what Facebook does. Yeah. With their lookalike matching. We were trying to build a non-Facebook version of what Facebook does. And do you uh, did you, you because you said you didn't use the surveys or uh, the information that you garnered from Facebook on uh, d- during the Trump campaign, right? So did you even that, use psychographics yes. to that end with Trump? No, not not campaign. No, we used data analytics in the way I've explained, um, with, with a view to you know predicting what was going on in each state and directing the campaign and targeting ads but not using psychographics. Is there anything that you did, in your opinion, that was different than any other marketing agency would do on a campaign? Um, I think the way that we combined data analytics with polling data was um, possibly unique um, and certainly special and gave an advantage to the campaign. And how effective do you think it was? I think it was highly effective. I, I think that we were able to predict what was going on in each state to um, uh, uh, to a high degree of accuracy, and by that I mean somewhere between you know one and three points. Three three percent. Yes. So so you like you you think that targeting those states probably influenced one to three percent uh, increase in vote in those areas. No, no, sorry. That's not what I meant. What I meant was that our, our ability to be able to predict how people were going to vote and what the uh, what the result was going to be was accurate to I see. a margin of less percent. And that was and that was key as it turned out. That was key because in the 2 weeks before the election, 
that's when we were able to see, identify these certain states where, although Hillary was still ahead of Trump, the direction of travel was that Trump was catching up. And so that's where we were able to certainly target ads, but also target the campaign to go and visit. And um, so that's where I think that we added a lot of value. What's, it, it, what's interesting to note is that you know, everything we did was nothing compared to what Jim Comey did, because it was that the reason that that direction of travel was changing was because Jim Comey had reopened the email investigation. And it was the first time in the entire campaign when there was a negative story about Hillary in the news and not a corresponding or bigger negative story about Trump. And you guys were tracking, um, you guys so were tracking all of these sentiments, right? So, like, yeah. what, what was the swing yeah, that you right. saw post-Comey? Well, what we, what, we, what we saw was that um, it was changing the way that um, uh, voting was happening. It was changing as who was voting, and, um, and that had an effect on uh, which way the states would fall. So what we saw was that we didn't know that Trump was going to overtake Hillary, but we saw it as a distinct possibility, and that was the, that was the way it was moving. So what do you think of people like Nate Silver, by the way? Um, do, I do don't think anything of Nate Silver. So, so he no. runs a blog called 538.com, and he's been known for essentially doing a lot of data analytics that have been accurate. And I think during the campaign, his entire his entire data set was showing something very similar. Basically, he was saying that if Hillary wants has a you know wants to win this thing, she's going to have to go to these states. And I think she basically identified the same states that you guys had identified in much of what you guys were doing. And he did that with publicly available information. So I guess that's my question is, did you guys use publicly available information for most of this? No, no. I mean, uh, when you say publicly available information, do you mean that uh, polls that were published? Well, yeah, data sets that you could that anybody could have gotten, even if it was a little bit more effort. You know, like uh, let me let me change the question a little bit. Describe the process of getting that data, and and before you answer, let me let me give you what uh, it, it in Brittany's book. She describes basically Nick's being on the phone negotiating with companies to get their data sets. I imagine that's that's pretty accurate. So the data, most of the data comes from the um, the RNC itself. So from their own data operations. So that's where that, that that's where the the main core of the data comes came from. Uh, and then uh, other sets of data. Uh, can come from uh, various places. It can come from other campaigns. If we've worked on other campaigns and if we have the right to retain and use the data, then it can come from there. It can come from commercial suppliers. Uh, so in a sense, that's not publicly available, although it's available to anyone if they pay the price. It's commercially available. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the, the likes of Axiom, Experian and, and, and others would be sources of data. And then there may be some other data sets that have come from other clients where um, where that client has given us the right to use the data right. um, after the completion of their program. And sometimes that might be a that might be the deal that was done. And probably what Brittany is alluding to is that sometimes people might have a project done maybe not pay full price for the project, but um, uh, allow their data to be used afterwards. And and do you think that some of these 
companies who are selling this data. I mean, it's it is a commodity, and I, I think of groups like what Info Group, which does a lot of advertising and data collection, uh, Axiom. Uh, you know, uh, who are the other ones that you mentioned? Experian. Experian. Uh, you know, all of all of these. Like, it's interesting to me that there seems to be a complete sort of neglect to look at how they collect data. Uh, it, and and do you do you know anything about the data collection methods of the companies you're buying from, or do you guys just use them to get data in? Well, I personally don't know about their data collection methods. It's not saying that no one at Cambridge Analytica did, um, but um, uh, we just we, we 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 used it to get data in. Okay, so you just you just got as much data in, and then and then your data analysts what were doing regressions and finding interesting correlations between this and this. I imagine that's that's right. I mean, basically, you know, write, writing scripts in Python and letting the machines. You know, let, let, let the machine learning run uh, in order to try and um, uh, identify some signal, sometimes very tiny signal. And they and they run through the halls and they say, "Oh my God, Eureka! I found something really interesting!" Right? And they come and they present it to That's you. Right. People that wear green ties vote for Donald Trump, but only on Wednesdays. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, do you, are you familiar with Renaissance Capital? Yes. It, it sounds very much. Sort of like what they do, but with election, uh, you know, an electorate. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 machine learning in the same way. Cool. And what are some of the like? What are some of those insights that you guys got from that machine learning? Uh, you mean in t- in terms of um, how people were going to vote? Yeah, like was it just the stuff you're saying, or was there some really kind of interesting things that you guys learned about voters? Well, I. I'm going to disappoint you. I don't know. Oh, that's um, fine. It, but what, we're, what, what we're talking about is, is what was going on the data analytics team uh, inside the, that um, campaign quarters. And whilst I've been debriefed since, um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't in the thick of it. Uh, well, <laughs> it's, it sounds like a lot of your whistleblowers weren't either. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about Chris Wiley. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Chris Wiley's story is interesting because he's kind of the first uh, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, what was his role at the company? Uh, so, so the company was the SCL Elections Company was quite young when he was uh, there. Um, he was there for the first six months of 2014. So there weren't very many people there. And he was working. He'd come, as I understand it, he'd been working in Canadian elections for the Liberal Party, I think. And um, and then he'd come across and he'd approached Alexander Nix because he wanted to come and join the company. Um, and so he was working... I'm not sure doing exactly what, but I think that this is this is where the idea came up that he knew someone at Cambridge University that had access to this Facebook data and that this data could be used um, in order to um, predict people's personalities in the way that I've described. Uh, so uh, he and 
another consultant. He wasn't an employee. He was a contractor, and there was another contractor. And between the two of them, they arranged for this data to be licensed from um, from Alexander Kogan uh, at Cambridge University. So and, the whistleblower, um, Christopher Wiley, was the source of the relationship that brought this this alleged terrible data in-house. That's correct. That's correct. And then having come up with the idea, and, and again, this is this is hearsay, but once I understand it, there was disagreement between him and Alexander Nix because he wanted equity in the company and Alexander didn't want to give it to him. So he left and he set up a competing company called Unoya and he he then went back to Kogan and licensed even more data into Unoya than he had arranged to be licensed into SCL, Cambridge and, Analytica. And did he, well, SCL and Cambridge Analytica, are those the same? I thought they were separate, right? Well, they're separate companies, but for the purposes of this, um, it was actually SCL licensing the data. Did Was there a wall, like a Chinese wall set up between Cambridge Analytica and SCL, or did they share a lot of things? Not at all. They shared a lot of things. In, in fact, SEL was was the service provider to Cambridge Analytica. So, um, uh, so, so uh, the, the two companies were um, were almost seamless. And then Christopher Wiley went off, and I imagine with his new company, uh, started to acquire or attempt to acquire contracts, much like Cambridge did. That's right. That's right. And, and in fact, that's when. We first knew he'd set up another company because the first time we went in to pitch to the Trump campaign, um, Corey Lewandowski turned around to Alexander Nix and said, there was another British company in here last week pitching exactly the same thing. And he showed him the presentation. And, and, and that was Unidine or whatever they call it. What is, what's the company called? Unoya. Unoya. Did he Unoya yes. you? <laughs> no. Um, so, so he pitched the Trump campaign. Uh, that's right. He pitched the Trump campaign. Yeah. Did he pitch any other clients, prospective clients of uh, SCLs? Uh, the I don't know because when we when we discovered that he um, that he pitched the Trump campaign and looking at his pitch, there was a concern that. He must have taken data from Cambridge Analytica because otherwise, how could he be offering the services he was offering? So we took um, a legal restraining action on them to get commitments that they didn't have any Cambridge Analytica data or wouldn't use any, and and so some undertakings were signed and that they also wouldn't target any clients that they had become aware of when they were with Cambridge Analytica. So. That, of course, it was at a time when we had no idea that they had actually separately licensed the data into their own company and so that they weren't using Cambridge Analytica data. But it was the same data. It was the same data. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was, you know, lots of Facebook information, which at the time was seen as being a, uh, um, a, treasure a competitive trade. advantage. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the other place that I do know that, they pitched the Brexit campaign in the UK. They pitched uh, a vote leave, and um, Dominic Cummings uh, 
apply into their services. But they hired Cambridge Analytica, right? No. 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 Okay. So Cambridge Analytica did. So uh, I think I, I think there's a lot of news out there that says that that Cambridge Analytica Analytica did in fact work for Vote Leave. Uh, what, what's her name? Cadwell Otter, um, the journalist. Yeah. Uh, she seems she's, to stay. Sorry, somewhat by that story. Yeah. Say it again. She's somewhat obsessed by that story. Yeah. So, what is the validity of the of what she has reported? What she has? What is incorrect about it, in your opinion? And uh, what? What? I mean, what? What needs to be corrected about that story? Because it's uh, in in her McCormick interview, Peter McCormick, um, uh, Brittany Kaiser. Unlike what I think she said or indicated in the uh, the great hack, she seems to realize that uh, Cambridge Analytica did not, in fact, do uh, the vote leave campaign. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the great hack, That's, it's yes. implied very much that Cambridge Analytica did administer the vote leave campaign. Yes. So, uh, well, let me tell you the facts of the situation. Um, and it's a little bit complicated because there are two Brexit campaigns. One's called Vote Leave and one's called Leave.eu. And the two of them were vying to be selected as the official Brexit campaign. And the, the, the attraction of that for them was that it meant that the money they were allowed to spend was higher. So they, they have a bigger budget. Is, is that because the so state two, gives them some funds or does the party give them funds? Like why, why would they have more money if they get selected? But, it's because the state imposes a restriction. Okay. Um, so the two of them were vying to be selected as the uh, official Brexit, Brexit campaign. So we pitched leave.eu. And leave.eu said, this is great. Yes, we're going we're, we're to work with you. And then they said, oh, by the way, we've got our launch event this coming Thursday. I think this was, the conversation was on a Tuesday. So two days' time, we've got our launch event. We're going to work with you. Would someone from Cambridge Analytica come and appear on the stage um, with us for the launch? And Brittany Kaiser's hand went up uh, uh, instantly. One day and so TV. she did. A... <laughs> there, we, there we are. <laughs> and and, and she, she appeared um, uh, on their launch campaign. And we said, yes, we're working with them because we thought we were. And we kept saying, yes, we were working with them because we thought we were. But eventually we realized that the contract that I'd sent was never coming back signed. And they were never going to um, uh, pay us any money. So it did toy with the idea of taking legal action against them to stop them saying that they were working with Cambridge Analytica. And it seemed too much trouble at the time. In hindsight, might have been might have been a good idea. Uh, so we we never did any work for them. We did, however, look at some data that UKIP, um, which is a, another UK political party focused on Brexit, um, we did look at some UKIP membership data because that was the only data that was available and it was helping us scope really what we had to start to work with. Um, and... Uh, so we we did that work. I think that's what Brittany is saying, that we did work for the campaign. But since we only did it internally and never provided them with any output, I would say we never worked for them. And, and why? Um, and they never paid. And, and and did you include it in any, uh, you know, one-sheeters, if you will, like uh, advertisements that you worked for them? 
I don't think so. Um, I think we spoke about it, certainly for a while, because we thought we were working for them. Um, and then we stopped speaking about it. And then there was the... So, just to finish the story, that campaign, Leave.eu, was not selected as the official exit camp Brexit campaign. So the other one was Vote Leave. So the, so the campaign we pitched was never the official Brexit campaign. Um, but the official Brexit campaign who uh, Chris Wiley pitched, Unoya pitched, um, ended up working with the Canadian company that we'd worked with on the cruise campaign, which A- was AIQ. AIQ? Yeah. So AIQ worked with them. So they're, they're really the ones to blame for all the, uh, all the, <laughs> the, uh, the claims that uh, they so greatly influenced the mind of British people that they droned to the, to the polls and, and voted to leave. I, I, I think I don't really accept that the minds of British people are so manipulatable that a few digital ads um, drove them to do things they don't want to do. There's, there's something else which is important and worth noting here, which is that um, the budgets for campaigns in the UK are tiny compared to the budgets in the US. And so to conflate even, and we've already talked about how powerful this technology is or isn't in the US when you've got big budgets, but to then take it and cut the budget by... Um, probably 95% and then and then try to use that as the excuse for the way that the Brexit vote went, I think is um, clutching at straws. Can we talk a little bit about marketing generally, just how it works? Because I, I the reason I, I'm a marketer, that's, that is my uh, history, right? Not a biz dev guy. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, the guy that works literally like with websites and stuff to help them increase uh, Google rankings and stuff. I mean, I did that for years in agency. And yep. uh, the, I, I'm astounded when I hear how how effective everybody seems to think marketing is. And there's a couple <laughs> of weird places this has manifest in the last few years. Number one is this belief that Russia uh, completely influenced the American election by buying some nominal amount of Facebook ads and uh, doing Twitter botting. The second is the Cambridge Analytica narrative, which says that Cambridge Analytica ran ads uh, in, you know, the Facebook sidebar or in your newsfeed, wherever the ads were able to be run and so effectively ran them. You guys are such stinking geniuses that you basically ran these little advertisements and it caused people to, in droves, stand up from their couch, walk to the polling stations, not knowing what they were doing because their opinions had been completely changed and they filled in a little bubble for Donald Trump. And I think the way that Brittany Kaiser describes this in her book, again, is like uh, you guys figured out that an old lady who has a gun and is like, uh, you know, I, uh, she says something like, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll keep my First Amendment right if you... Or my my uh, my right to bear arms if you shut up or something like that. Uh, the idea that that woman was going to vote for anybody but Trump uh, is astounding to me, and and it it is yep. amazing to me that people will believe this about marketing. And I think that marketers are incredulous, although some of them seem to suspend belief for these narratives uh, because it's politically convenient. But what do you think about these claims that marketing is as effective as they seem to think it is? 
Well, as you were describing the effectiveness of Cambridge Analytica's services just then, I was thinking how similar your explanation was to what, what I think Alexander Nix's um, uh, pitch speech was. Yes, you, you could have been writing our marketing pitch when you were describing about the effectiveness of what we did, but actually it was heavily overinflated. Right. Um, and, and and so here's, here's the truth. Here's, in about um, October 2016, we were working for the Trump campaign, and we did not think he was going to win. We thought, well, what's that going to do for our business? So we started a <laughs> PR media outreach campaign to get out there and tell all the journalists that would listen that, look, it's not our fault. We didn't choose the candidate, but it would have been much worse, worse without us. And look how clever we are and look how brilliant what we're doing. And, and so we did this PR campaign, and then all of a sudden, he unexpectedly won. And everyone <laughs> turned around and said, oh, it must have been Cambridge Analytica. Right. And, of course, we didn't deny that. We didn't deny that. We said, yes, that's right, it was us. Um, <laughs> So, so well, 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 I mean, know, what we, would you do as a marketing company? What what kind of stupid decision would it be to not admit that it was you? Yeah, yeah. Take the credit. Take the credit. And it worked brilliantly. I mean, the phone never stopped ringing. We were getting phone calls from commercial companies and political parties all around the world. It was incredible. Um, but the reality is, is that um, uh, you know, political campaigns, they you're talking about. You know, small small changes in voting behaviour. If you could, if you can make a few percentage difference in a particular place, then that can tip the election the other way. And so, all political campaigning is about making small differences. Uh, and certainly, Cambridge Analytica's technology, whilst it had value, it was not a mind control machine. Were Were you guys the greatest, most effective advertising company in the history of the world? <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, I think that uh, I, I think we were just we were able to give advertisers a better return on their advertising spend, be slightly more efficient, and and by three tenths of a percent, you're saying often. Yes, yes. I mean, but 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 somewhere it could be single digit improvements. It could be ten percent. It might be fifteen percent. Uh, that's probably about the limit. Fifty? You think fifteen between like. Five percent and fifteen percent, somewhere in there, is is the effect of, depending on what you're advertising. Yes, yes. I mean, there might be outliers, but in general, I'd say that. So, Wyden and Kennedy is the advertising company that did the Old Spice commercials. I don't know if you guys have seen those in the UK. Is this where the guy's surfing? Uh, no, he's like sitting on a horse. They're nonsense ads. They're very funny, but uh, they're they're just they're. They were highly effective. They revitalized the brand. So Old Spice was for your grandpa, and it's stinky stuff. It smells terrible. And uh, and they didn't reformulate it. They didn't do anything different with it. They just made it appealing to young kids by having this like funny Super Bowl ad, and it was ridiculously effective. Ridiculously. <laughs> that, to me, is the rare sort of home run ad that is hard to do and is rare to do. Yeah, I agree. Do you consider your work with the Trump campaign or any time in the history of Cambridge Analytica, did you guys ever have an, a success that, that was like that? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, the, 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 the stuff that we were doing was providing you know, incremental 
improvement, but it wasn't it wasn't you know world changing. Right. I mean, you guys were, you guys were doing ad spend that was like anyone else would do. It's just that you guys were better than you know people hire agency because agency's got experience. So you guys are more efficient at managing it than bringing some, uh, some new college student in and having him do it. You guys had a team of people working on like basically ad spend. Yes, that's right. That's right. And they were good. I mean, and and I'm sure they were good. That's the purpose of agency, right? Like why would you hire bad people? (laughs) And, And I think that we were as good as it got, but that, that's only so good. Well, why would why would anyone hire f- for a presidential campaign someone who was not as good as it got? I imagine Hillary had an agency of record. Yeah, and I imagine they did similar work. I'm I'm, I'm sure of it because a lot of this, you know, data analytics and social media advertising, it, it, the, the, the ground was broken by the Obama campaigns. Mm-hmm. And so what Hillary inherited was the Democratic Party's infrastructure that had been built um, for the Obama campaigns. And as I understand it, that actually was part of their problem, was the fact that uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't up to the job and the system kept falling over. So you think they may have over-relied on Facebook data? Um, I don't. I can't. I can't say to that. But I think that when it came to being able to do analytics around the country uh, and and targeting, that their system was not robust. So it, 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 you know, it was technology that was ten years old at that point. So Brittany actually came in. Brittany Kaiser came in from the Obama campaign after having worked for Obama, after having worked for a number of other progressive causes. How much do you guys know about what Obama did? Oh, just and you guys. I mean, I guess um, I mean you. How much do you know? Headlines, yeah, just just headlines. Um, so I, I know the areas uh, that, that they developed technology in, where they where they broke ground, and things like you know tar- target um, targeting and um, uh, social media. But I, I don't know the detail of what they did. Well, uh, let me let me tell you what I understand they did, and I, I think I'm pretty accurate, and and I'll have you respond to that. As I understand mm-hmm. it, what they did is they had campaign volunteers log into the Obama app using their Facebook login, and using that, they would then harvest all of the data from that individual and all of their connections. And because Obama's campaign was large, had a large grassroots effort, they basically got everybody's data from Facebook. Everybody's. Yeah. Is that, that sounds about right. Did you guys have... I mean, it sounds to me like they had probably more data than you. Oh, they certainly did. I mean, the way you, what you just described, they, they, they certainly had more data than. And I would also consider that that's much more manipulable in terms of acquisition of the data than what you guys did. Especially considering you didn't yeah. actually use it, uh, per your claim. Yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't use it on the Trump campaign. I'm not saying we didn't use it at all, but we didn't get it. Certainly didn't get used on the Trump campaign, um, or, or the leave, the, or the leave campaign, for that matter. Or the leave, right? Correct, correct. Um, so, I mean, there's another dimension to this, which is um, that Facebook's rules changed, um, and so when they did that, 
I think that that wasn't against Facebook's rules. Um, and when we licensed the data, it's actually, to be honest with you, it's, it's still ambiguous to me now as to whether Alexander Kogan did or did not have Facebook's permission to, uh, to take the data. Um, so, but certainly the rules have changed in that period. But the amount of data that they took uh, and, and, and the quantity of it was, without people's knowledge, I think you could easily argue that that was more egregious than what we did. But, um, you know, that's what it, it, ours was the name that hit the press and became synonymous with um, uh, Facebook data, or inappropriate use of Facebook data. Um, and that's what killed the company, or part of what killed the company. Do you feel that there's a double standard here wherein if it's a cause that somebody believes in, um, this sort of data mining and this use of psychographics and everything else is viewed as okay, but the instant that it's a candidate or someone that they dislike or some cause they dislike, all of a sudden it's easy to cast aspersions at the practice of grabbing data, using it for this purpose, or any purpose for that matter? You know, I, I, I think that's certainly that, that double standard um, amongst certain sections of the public and the media. It's, it's, it's not just ironic that it was fine when Obama was doing it, but a problem when it got Donald Trump elected, um, or, or, or that they thought it, it got the Brexit vote went in a way that they didn't want it to go. Um, it's, uh, um, I, I, th I think, you know, the best thing you can put on it is that getting election results that people didn't like is what motivated them to become indignant. And, and what are your thoughts today on the sort of morality of harvesting all of this data and using it for or against people? Uh, so, I, I think, um, you know, I've come quite a long way. That this, 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 when we were at Cambridge Analytica, we put a lot of effort into making sure that we were the right side of the law, the right side of regulation, the right side of regulations, uh, and that, and that we we weren't breaking any rules. But what we didn't ever stop to think about is: is this ethically acceptable? If people knew what we were doing, would they be comfortable with it? Do we tell people what we're doing in a transparent way? And do we give people the option to say, actually, I don't want you to process my data uh, in that way? And so I, I think in hindsight, the rules in Europe versus the rules in the US are very, very different, or the regulatory framework, I should say. But, the, but, but we can't expect the regulator to be able to keep us safe from this type of, uh, safe in inverted commas, from this type of politics, because the regulator will never be able to keep up. There needs to be something inside companies, which is that ethical process, that ethical component, that pause that says, okay, this, we've discovered this new source of data, or we've discovered this new way that we can analyze it. Does it comply with the, you know, the, the, the ethical position that we want to take and that we communicate with our um, with our partners that we take. Well, so I think, I, I, I think what it has done is it's highlighted a big, for me, it's highlighted a big gap in the way that this stuff is managed. Here, here's one of my big issues in, in researching for this discussion. 
Brittany Kaiser is going around and is viewed now as this expert in the subject of data privacy and such. And first of all, it seems like she didn't have any experience with data privacy other than through these one-sheeter pamphlets of advertisement. But apart from that, I don't think it, it seems like she is not so indignant about the use of data when it comes to causes she likes, such as, you know, driving people in Africa to a hospital, getting them to go to a hospital instead of like the witch doctor, which I think is a fine cause. But she's extremely indignant in the use of this data in causes she doesn't like. So she doesn't seem to understand the irony of Obama using this data in exactly the same way that you guys, in fact, didn't even use it, but could have used the data. She's accusing you of using the data, but she's okay with it uh, in the use of progressive um, political sort of activities. I do think that there is an important discussion to be had about how data should be used. But it seems to me that it's the difficulty is in trying to figure out a universalizable principle that we can apply to the use of data such that it is either wrong to use it in all cases uh, of a certain type and it's right to use it in all cases of another type. And, and those don't seem clearly defined to me when the types seem to be things that Brittany Kaiser supports and things that Brittany Kaiser doesn't support. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you make a few points. I mean, there's points about Brittany Kaiser. I think Brittany Kaiser has her own agenda. I agree. Brittany Kaiser wants to be Brittany Kaiser, and she wants to be famous for being Brittany Kaiser. And what she actually stands for or what the message is will change over time, um, uh, depending on, uh, I would say, the, the way the wind blows. Uh, she's... And, and actually, I think she's doing very well at that. She's she's she uh, she wanted to be famous, and she's you know well at least infamous. Um, on the second point, I think the problem that you've got with there being clear rules about it's okay for data to be used in this way but not that way is that actually the the, the ethical acceptability of the way data is used is very uh, individual. What one person perceives as being a good use of their data is what another person sees as being a misuse of their data. And so I don't think it's possible for us just to classify that certain uses are okay and certain uses aren't okay. Uh, I think that we need more transparency and there should be some competition um, available. So, for example, if I want to pay a premium for my phone and get an iPhone and know that Apple will always will never use my data, then that's my choice. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a privileged choice when millions of billions of people around the world use free services on the Internet and they barter their data and they happily barter their data um, to do it. Do you think that's what they knew they were doing? I think... Whether they, I'm not sure they knew they were doing to start with. I think that most people know they're doing that now. Um, I think that you know, there's been a lot of news and stories around it. But if I stand up, if I stand up in front of a um, uh, an audience of university students and I ask them, if you've got the choice of allowing your data to be used 
and you see ads that are of interest to you or not allowing your data to be used and you just get to see random ads, which do you choose? And to a man in the age group, they'll choose the first one. So it's, it, 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 I think it's really important that somehow we put something in place which not just um, uh, communicates and provides transparency and provides a clear ethical position, but also allows some element of choice for the individual. I agree. And I, I also think that there is sort of a lack of, I mean, you're, you've worked in finance, so you understand the concept of, of, of fiduciary. I do think that there should be something similar in uh, discussions of data, wherein we discuss how it is that those who aggregate data ought to be in some ways fiduciaries of that data and, and use it only in ways that maybe benefit the user or potentially benefit the user for which there would be an argument uh, that the user themselves could be benefited. Yes. I mean, I'd like to go further. I'd like the companies to say very clearly, this is what we do. And, and, and then I'd like them to ensure that they have processes set up internally to ensure that what they say they do is what they do. And, and then I'd even go as far as having an external audit confirm that they've got those processes and those processes are working. If you went all that way, then everybody who deals with that organization, whether it's their business partners or whether it's, uh, it's um, you know, suppliers or customers or um, maybe it's individual consumers, everybody has confidence that they know what's going on. And then they can make a choice. To, to that end, one of the big breaches in Cambridge Analytica's maybe ethical responsibility was that Facebook came to you and said, delete this data. Mm -hmm. And there's an allegation that you did not. And I think earlier you said you did. Yes, there is. No, we did. Oh, sorry. Uh, what I said earlier was that we hadn't deleted it even though it hadn't been very effective and, and uh, we, we hadn't deleted it at the time that Facebook asked us to delete it. But when they asked us to delete it, we did delete it. You did? Yes. And you didn't use it for anything else? Correct. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that's interesting because that, is not, that yeah. is not the claim that critics have made. And I don't know well, what evidence they have that you did or didn't. So, so here's one thing which, which struck me. I, I can remember at one point we deleted the data and then there was a news story that said, somebody's just shown me a copy of Cambridge Analytica you know, Facebook data. So it, it wasn't deleted. And I can remember being on the phone to the chief data scientist, um, chief data officer at the company, saying to him, where? Where could they have seen that from? How did it come? And we were completely nonplussed. We had no idea what, what they could claim to have seen. Now, I still don't know the answer to this, but what I have learned since, and I didn't know at the time, was that Cambridge Analytica wasn't the only company that had a copy of this data. Well, obviously. You know I had a copy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Wiley had copies of exactly the same data, as I'm sure did other people. Yeah. It was clear that whoever was selling it was selling it to whomever paid the price for it. Yeah. But, um, but, but, so that's that new story came out. We had deleted the data, and in fact, we were arranging um, 
in the beginning of 2018, we were in discussions with Facebook for them to send a team in and uh, undertake a forensic audit on our systems in order to confirm that the data uh, had been deleted. This is because of these new stories that have come out. Um, and then the information commissioner in the UK stepped in and told Facebook that they weren't to deal with us at all um, because they were they were worried about collusion. So in actual fact, that audit, which would have demonstrated it, got blocked by the regulator. So I, I have two main things that I, I want to hit on, um, and then uh, well, and then get into a couple of other little questions. But there's there's one big claim that everyone I, I've talked to about this has asked me. And it smells like bullshit, but I figured I'd get your uh, your take on it because you know, given given what you know, Nix's uh, willingness to kind of lie, <laughs> stretch the truth, I guess is what I would say about the effectiveness of Cambridge Analytica's campaigns. Can we talk about Trinidad? Yeah, sure. Um, I can't shed a lot of light on it. It was. It was at that time when I was not involved with the company. So I was still on the board of a different company, but it was before I came and joined Alexander at SEL Elections. And so uh, I can't speak in detail to it, but the, the thought which has struck me, and I, and I know that Brittany believed every word of what was being said, but like you, my, my experience of Alexander is that he never made a sales pitch where the bounds of reality weren't stretched and the most positive spin wasn't put on it. Um, and so, you know, I, I almost get to the point where um, if he says that that's what he did on the campaign, it's almost certainly not true. <laughs> um, it would be something something less than that. But, but the... I mean, what he said he did was that they came up with this do so, this do so campaign, which um, which stopped people or which dissuaded certain sections of the community from from voting. Um, and my guess would be that that's post-event rationalisation on his part. Right. I mean, I, I hear the do so pitch, and I think to myself, how would a bunch of Brits come up with something so non-linguistic? Non it's very clear to me that that is a sort of local euphemism, um, and that would be very hard for me to conceive of a group of people uh, sitting in a room who aren't from Trinidad coming up with a pitch like that. Did 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 they have local operatives in in Trinidad that would have come up with that, or is does it seem to me that, it, or am I? correct in thinking that they probably augmented somebody else's campaign with ads. Yeah, that, that would be my um, belief, yeah. And, and alternatively, belief. The, the belief that this, like, the voter suppression stuff, I mean, I, I think of political advertising, the goal of it being, number one, to get the people that you want to the polls, uh, as you're paying for advertising, and number two, uh, to get people who you don't want to the polls to not go. And I, I don't. I'm trying to figure out where people think the moral, uh, where their moral qualms are with trying not to suppress, but to not get to, to get people to not show up if they don't think they're going to vote uh, the way they want them to. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of faux indignation uh, about this point. Um, political campaigns since the beginning of time uh, try and um, uh, if, if if people if they don't think they can get people to vote for their candidate, try and dissuade them from voting for the other candidate. And it, it, it's it's a feature it's a feature of every election here. I know that some campaigns say well, we won't do negative cam- negative advertising, but actually they're the minority. And it's a very normal feature of campaigning. Well, the I, fact that I don't even believe was, that, it, by the way. Like, I mean, Kaiser claims that uh, in in her McCormick interview that Obama didn't do any negative advertising, and yet his entire campaign was predicated on calling Mitt Romney, his opponent, a Nazi, and uh, and you know, coming up with things like he had his dog on the top of the roof of his car, running ads, or running things about that. And running stuff about uh, his comment on how he has binders full of women, like these were these were viral campaigns. Maybe Obama didn't necessarily do them himself, but they were central to the Obama campaign and uh, hate of his opponent. So I just don't accept when people yep. say that they're not doing negative advertising that they're actually truly committed to not doing negative advertising. You, you know. And you have to be a little bit careful here because it's easy for a campaign to say we're not doing negative advertising, um, especially if there's a super PAC that's been set up to do the negative advertising. Um, the, the, you know, the fact that a particular candidate says I don't do that um, doesn't stop it happening at all. And right. Frankly, anyone who thinks it does is probably naive. So, again, I guess the last thing uh, that I really wanted to get into was uh, Brittany Kaiser mentioned that you guys were doing some work with ICOs. Oh, yes. What, what was the work that Cambridge Analytica did with ICOs? Well, I, th- I think there may have been two contracts. Not sure. There was definitely one, and that was the launch of the Dragon um, ICO. And we did uh, – Is that Disney? Uh, we did some – Dragon, Dragon. Right, uh, Dragon Chain. I think that was a Disney project. Um, sorry, can't. You don't know? Can't help. No. I'm I'm looking here if it's Dragon Chain or what it is. Dra- Dragon Token. Okay, so you think? Oh, okay, so like uh, it, it looks like a betting token. Um, what China? Yeah, maybe? that's right. That's, that's what, okay. That's what. It, yeah, that's it. And and we did, we did the um, we did the. Uh, uh, the launch um, advertising for them, digital advertising. And do you do you have any feelings on these ICOs generally? Uh, only I think that that that, that they're a mixed bag. Um, you know, th- 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 there's a few that are worth having, and there's most that aren't. But um, that's very. Uh, um, that's a very general view, right? But I mean, it is. Uh, but you didn't. I mean, t- to me, like you, you don't. Have, you didn't have any moral qualms with Cambridge Analytica's advertising these. You guys didn't really care about whether they worked or not. You guys were just advertising what you were paid to advertise. Yeah, I mean, it might be a little bit strong to say that we didn't care, but um, we were in advertising company providing advertising services to clients who paid for our services. Um, Is it safe to say that you guys don't strongly vet these people who come to you? 
Um, and and there are, the reason I, I'm I, asking is there, there I, are parallels here, I think, because uh, I, I kind of want to ask a question uh, about the Trump campaigns coming to you guys and why they picked Cambridge Analytica, which I think is actually pretty interesting as a question. So, um, well, well let's, let's address that. So uh, we'd worked for the Cruz campaign. Ted Cruz had gone from the least popular candidate to the last man standing before um, uh, before Trump was got the nomination. And... Um, and when he got the nomination, I think the, the Trump campaign recognized that they wanted, uh, that they needed a, um, a data and digital operation. And we clearly had credentials. Steve Bannon had gone into the uh, Trump for president campaign as campaign chairman, um, I think. And so there was a relationship there. And I think it was Jared Kushner that... Um, uh, that pushed for us to get hired. Do you know if the Trump campaign had tried to uh, s- solicit the services of other companies before Cambridge Analytica? Uh, I don't know that. I mean, as we discussed before, we know that uh, Corey Lewandowski had had a pitch from Unoya previously, but I don't know who else uh, they would have spoken to. Uh, the, the reason I ask is because I was un- of the understanding that they had pitched a number of companies, marketing companies, and that they had been rejected by many of them. Uh, that's that's not anything I can comment on. Okay. I, I didn't. I've not heard that. Okay. Um, that that's that that's a. Uh, I, I I thought that that was I thought that that had come from you. So I guess it didn't. Um, uh, it, but but yeah, the I mean I, I think it I, I do think that it's I mean that that's the way this works is that you know people come to marketing companies and they get marketing services and the marketing companies don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of why or why you know what the what the business is. Your job is to cast them in a good light. Yes, I mean I think that we're we're, we're advocates. You know, it's probably worth worth saying that. Sometimes for people, for the staff in Cambridge Analytica, it was challenging to be working for some candidates. Um, I would say that there was a lot, a high proportion of the staff in Cambridge Analytica were, I'll say, liberal-leaning in their own political views, and they didn't um, particularly enjoy working for Republican candidates. But nevertheless, there was a focus on doing our best to provide a professional service, um, I guess in a little bit, little bit like a, a, a lawyer would do for a client. Um, so, so we provide a professional service. Uh, I certainly didn't have any qualms about working for the nominated candidate in a U.S. presidential election, you know, 50% of a two-party system. Um, it, it's not. It's not my role to, um, you know, to start to, to start filtering that, especially not as being a Brit. Right, right. I mean, are you surprised? I, I, I mean, I'll tell you what. I'm surprised that you can comment on my surprise. I'm surprised at the low, uh, the low bar for what it takes for someone to be considered and/or to consider themselves a whistleblower. 
And the reason I say that is because looking at Brittany, it, it doesn't seem like she knew what was going on there in the way that she seems to say she knew what was going on there. And uh, I think Peter McCormick, again, in, uh, comments on this in the interview with her, that the great hack puts huge amounts of emphasis on her role on uh, in, within Cambridge Analytica. And it just feels disingenuous to me to say that she had a huge role in Cambridge Analytica, given that she really wasn't... Um, she was a biz dev person and not even one of these data data analysts. So everything that she has is basically a repetition of, of the marketing that you guys did. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, she was a biz dev person. She ended up leaving the company um, because Alexander wouldn't give her the pay increase that she thought she deserved. Uh, and so she left the company. Am I right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I think that that, 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 that that coincided with the the Dragon coin offering that you just spoke about having yeah. been completed. I think she got some coin from that, um, uh, direct from the company. So I think she had some liquidity, and so she decided to leave. Your point about whistleblowers is, um, uh, is interesting because what is apparent to me is that as soon as you stand up and call yourself a whistleblower, you not only get the media attention, but also people believe you. They almost suspend um, uh, doubt or, uh, or, uh, or, or challenge. And so, so long as there are some elements of truth in what you're saying, you can just be as creative as you like. And so, you know, both whistleblowers in the, from the... Uh, um, uh, what we could call, what we could call, if we say, the, the two Cambridge Analytica whistleblowers are both guilty of misrepresentation um, and exaggeration, but they're whistleblowers, so people believe them. And are they designated whistleblowers, or is that just a title they've given themselves? I don't know. I, I, Brittany Kaiser, I think, was whistleblower of the year um, on the front page of the Washington Post. Really. That that's astounding. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it it just seems to fly in the face of of uh, the practice of whistleblowing, and 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 I say that just because generally when I think of a whistleblower, I think of someone highly neurotic uh, and who is collecting lots and lots of data and paperwork. Not someone who kind of just you know happenstance decides to enter the fray. And uh, and say things that are uncorroborated, and when corroborated, I think are highly suspect. Yeah, yeah. It's um, maybe there were some brand consultants involved. That <laughs> could be true. Well, <laughs> Julian, this has been absolutely wonderful. Um, do you have anything that you want to say as sort of a final note? The things maybe that you haven't said elsewhere or that other people don't know about uh, that you think are important to get out. And I'm, I'm going to just publish this wholesale, let people make their own judgments about everything. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know uh, that I'm, I, I think when it comes to like uh, Bitcoin stuff, I tend to be very good at poking holes in everything. And, uh, 
and asking really tough questions. For the most part here, I don't think that that's what's needed because I think that the reality is your story has been kind of ignored by everybody. And, uh, and, and I, uh, you know, my thinking at least lines up with a lot of what you're saying. I think that you're, you're, you know, there's, there's just, I don't see the evidence and the, the claims that the whistleblowers are making, in my opinion, um, as someone who's worked as a marketer are incredulous at the very least. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose my as I, as I reflect back on the events of you know, the, the last couple of years, I, I still have to pinch myself to uh, um, to make sure I'm not asleep because it's it, it, you know life is stranger than fiction, and I would never have believed that what happened to Cambridge Analytica could happen to me. Um, and when I said, I think I said at the early part of this interview that in some respects this was a PR disaster. Um, and actually, looking back on it, I think it is. I think that you know, the company hasn't been found guilty of having done anything wrong. There's, 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 you know, incredible claims being made about the company. Uh, but I think that you know, as time goes on, people are, are are realizing that actually it's just not true, or grossly exaggerated, or misrepresented. Um, where, so my biggest piece of learning is that where Cambridge Analytica failed is that it um, It didn't manage its media communications effectively enough. It over-managed and over-exaggerated its, um, its marketing communications, and it created a rod for its own back, which when someone wanted, when people wanted someone to blame for you know, election results that they didn't like, um, Cambridge Analytica had crafted itself into the perfect target well, in the great hack, so, you mentioned that you guys tried to hire PR consultants uh, of your own, crisis consultants. Yeah. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, we did. Yes. So we, 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 we spoke to, um, uh, I think, probably about 10 specialist crisis PR companies, all of whom sat and listened very politely, went away to think about it, and came back and said, I'm sorry, we can't work with you. So, uh, um these are companies that will work with people that are accused of like terrible, terrible things, I imagine, but they won't work with yeah. you. You are too toxic. Yeah. To find yourself in a place where you're, where you're in a crisis, which is too bad for crisis PR companies to touch, you do have to, um, you know, pinch yourself. Is this really happening? Every morning I would wake up and think, I wonder what's going to happen today because it just, you know, it, almost on a daily basis, the allegations and the stories just became more and more bizarre. And do you think there's something more insidious here down the pipeline? Like, for example, I think that Cambridge Analytica is probably a large reason why Twitter is banning, you know, Twitter ads for politicians. And I just think the rhetoric yeah. used against you, I mean, I, I look at it and and I'm very weirded out by this idea that uh, we can start blaming marketing companies for everything. And it just makes me think that this was a political hit job that's not meant for this year, but that's that, that we'll see the results of it in, you know, maybe one or two or three elections from now. Remember Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. The, 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 the strange thing for me is is that the you know the world of politics has used the tools of the advertising industry since the world of politics began, and certainly the system that you have in the U.S. allows for you know people to raise large sums of money 
and use advertising and media channels um, freely in order to put their message across. So what I don't understand is why are we singling out digital advertising uh, in particular, and why does Twitter feel it needs to take that stance? Because I think that if you're going to have a system that allows that, um, uh, that, that, that liberal approach to communications, then it's an, it becomes an important part of the democratic process, enabling candidates to get their message out and to communicate. I do understand the concern about fake news, um, but I think that can be addressed in a bunch of different ways. I mean, number one, I don't think that, 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 that the official candidates are responsible for what we talk about as being fake news. Um, foreign actors and, and other malign actors are, um, uh, are responsible for that. You know, sometimes politicians exaggerate or lie, but actually that's been going on forever. That's not a, that's not a feature of um, digital advertising world. And actually, uh, you know, a, a, a free democratic process should allow a politician to lie and should allow another politician to then call them out on it. So the one thing that I do think is um, is potentially a, a gap and somewhere where we could do something useful is that is this fear of well, I know what ads I've seen, but I don't know what ads that campaign's shown to other people. So I think that I would look to the um, FEC and suggest that all campaigns and super PACs are obliged to have a central repository online of all the ads they put out so anyone can go and see the full set of ads that that campaign or that pack has put out uh, rather than just the ones that are rendered to them. I think that that would go a long way to demystifying um, and, and, and addressing some of the uh, some of the concerns about um, ads. I would actually say that that's a, a very good suggestion, but I would like to see that also with like super PACs, right, that they would be required to yeah. show those as well. Because I think that there is a problem here in the U.S. with the ability to hide behind these super PACs and, and basically allow them to do your dirty work for you. And I think that's true of both Republicans and Democrats. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Well, they're both... The PACs and super PACs are also governed by the FEC, and, and I would agree with you. It should be campaigns and the PACs and super PACs. All right. Well, Julian, I don't have much else. Anything else on your end? No. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. I've enjoyed it enormously, and uh, it's uh, nice, to, uh, uh, nice to catch up. Thank you. All right, everyone. This is John Seth chucking up the deuce of the South. The Mass is going peace. St. Catherine, pray for us.